Welcome, everyone, to this week's episode of the Superhero Ethics Podcast. My name is Matthew Westfox. I'm one of your hosts. And joining this week is our friend Katie Valentine, who has been a, um, a longtime friend and colleague of mine. Uh, she, I actually met her because she was a TA of mine in grad school. Um, and I'm really excited to have Katie on because uh, Katie is a, a lover of a lot of these questions and topics. In particular, we're going to be focusing today on uh, the Buffy the Vampire Slayer, that character, uh, and in particular, the idea of apocalypticism in the Buffy story, which is something I know Katie really cares about. So, Katie, do you want to say hello and introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, hi, everyone. And Matthew, was I really your TA? You were. Yep. <laughs> for what class? Uh, that was for Be- uh, exegesis. Biblical oh, my exegesis. goodness. I, um, I just remember hanging out. I'm not sure I recall <laughs> that particularly. So um, so I'm so glad that we, we became friends after the TA experience. Well, I'm glad. That way I feel like I won't get graded on this conversation. So. <laughs> not, not at all. So all the better. Uh, way, yes, yes. Uh, a lot more fun than that. Um, yeah, so I am a, a biblical scholar, which means I study a lot of ancient texts. Um, I study a lot of ancient apocalyptic texts. I've been watching Buffy, I want to say, I don't know what the year was, but they were in season six, and I caught an episode or two and really liked it, and then um, started watching it from the beginning, or when at the time there was no DVR, Uh, you know, (laughs) TiVos were brand new, so I kind of caught it when it was on, and then eventually got all of the DVDs, and I'm really proud that I've converted at least three people to this TV show, like explicitly. People I knew would like it, I sat them down, and I kind (laughs) of carefully selected episodes for them to watch. So um, I'm not only a fan, I'm a proselytizer of I the like show. It. I like it. Yeah. I've done the same with Buffy as well as a couple other shows. So that's great to hear. Well, good. I'm so glad that, that you're able to join us. And especially um, we're going to be jumping uh, deeper into that topic of the apocalypticism, especially and um, the role it plays in Buffy and the role it plays in uh, a, a number of sort of superhero and, and similar shows. I know I want to definitely touch on Avengers and how it comes up. But let's just start with what really drew you to Buffy? What 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 do you love about the show and especially Buffy as a hero? You know, I think what I love about the show is what Joss Whedon, the creator and one of the the main one of the main writers in its early years, really tapped into in the late 90s and early 2000s and he's very explicit about this is that um, there's a hero who is a woman, not only a woman but a teenage girl. And she can fight, she can um, be smart, yet she can also be a teenager all at the same time. Um, And that's, of course, one of the conflicts of the show. Can she have a normal life or can she not? And he said he was really tired of watching horror movies where um, the young blonde girl ran up the stairs and got, you know, eaten or killed or whatever it was um, because she didn't have enough sense to go through the front door. And away from danger. Yeah. So he created the superhero that did the exact opposite. Um, I like the mythology. I like sort of the spiritualism of the show. Uh Um, I think it's interesting. Joss Whedon is, uh, or, uh, you know, I've seen, I've seen him proclaim before. I don't know if he still is an atheist, Mm -hmm. yet he really draws on this rich tradition of mysticism and of um, sort of spiritual realities that are just behind the veil, very apocalyptic. Um, and that all appealed to me as a young adult and now as a not young adult as well. And I'm still watching it. No, I, I think that's great. You, you tapped into a couple things that I, I think also echo why I've loved the show. Um, first of all, I mean, I remember when it, it when I first got introduced to it, um, uh, you know, I was I still thought of myself as kind of a goth uh, kid. Um, and certainly I rejected a lot. Like, like to me, you know, the image of the blonde cheerleader um, was certainly not the person I was normally going to think of as a hero. Um, and I remember the show was actually a really good way of me challenging that own assumption of like why am you know the kind of ideas I had about the preppies and the cheerleaders. Um, and and Buffy definitely doesn't necessarily fit into that, especially not as much as she does in the movie um, that was made before the um, the well, show. But yeah. there is definitely that element, and I I I I love the way you articulated that about the way the show kind of really challenges that idea of you know the the assumptions that are often made about the blonde popular girl. Um, uh, so I think that's great. And I, I also think you're right about the mysticism aspect. To me, I mean, one thing that um, Paul and I, my normal co-host, often talk about, one of the reasons we love these shows so much, is these extended universes and is the way that there is a lot of consistency. And I, I think what Joss did was so interesting in terms of you know, having this – a clearly understood mystical world behind the show that you know, season after season we learn more about. 
um, in ways that I think get, get, get into some really great deep issues. Yeah, I agree. And the, you know, in Buffy, there's a little something for everyone. If you like scholarship, you, there's sort of an element of scholarship. They're always researching. They're always in books. If you like Wicca and witchcraft, you know, beginning in season two, there's a little bit of that. If you sort of see yourself as the person who is drawn into all this, and you would really rather be anywhere else. Right. Um, there's a little bit of that too, right? That we all have to do things we don't really want to do, right? Given the choice, would Buffy be the slayer? Would she not? And that's kind of a, one of the central questions of the show. Right. Well, and something I know we'll talk about is that the element to some extent that she doesn't get to make that choice. Um, right. Which I know is, is a theme that um, we sometimes hear in, in hero things, but in particular, like, um, ha- have you seen Luke Cage? Are you up to date with that one? I've, I've seen about half of it. Okay. Well, at least you so know that then, you know, that's um, without spoiling anything for you or any of our audience who hasn't seen it, but certainly in that and a number of other more recent shows – there's a lot about the hero having to choose whether or not they're going to be a hero. Um, and I think it's interesting to think of Buffy in that light because in some ways Buffy doesn't really get to make that choice, at least not at first. Um, yeah, I agree. She doesn't. And what the show – the tension the show plays on is within the um, – within her role as the, her- as the hero or the heroine of the story, what are the choices that she makes? Right. Exactly. Right. And sometimes good, sometimes bad. And they show her growing as she moves into young adulthood. Um, and, uh, and also making just very human choices sometimes too. Um, and so without, I'm assuming that if you're listening to this, you're somewhat a fan of the show, um, spoiler ahead, uh, for the next minute. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I, I should say, uh, a spoiler warning for this podcast. We're probably going to spoil everything having to do with Buffy the Vampire Slayer, <laughs> possibly some parts about the TV show Angel. Um, and certainly I know we'll be spoiling, um, elements from Avengers, both of the two Avengers movies. So if you haven't seen any of those, hit pause. Go watch 80 hours of television and movies and then <laughs> right. come back and keep listening. So. <laughs> or listen and watch it anyway because yeah, uh, the, dia- the dialogue and everything is so good. You'll, you'll enjoy it anyway. Exactly. But, you know, like in the Buffy and Angel relationship, um, there's this element of she – they sleep together and then he turns into a monster. Right. But there's also the element of she's a teenage girl and she sleeps with a guy for the first time and then he, um, then he doesn't like her anymore. Right. You know, so it works on sort of this mythical, mystical level of magic, but it also just works on like that's a really sucky experience to to live through for anyone. I, I mean, I, I always thought one reason why I loved Buffy so much, and I, and I'll say I didn't love Angel quite as much, is I thought Buffy did this great job of being highly melodramatic about you know these demons and vampires and end of the world situations. But using it all kind of as a mirror for high school, you know, and the melodrama that we feel in high school. And there's an extent to which I loved it because I could sort of feel like watching someone be totally stressed out about the vampires and totally stressed out about a boy asking her out and and seeing them kind of be her reacting to both as a teenager. That worked for me in a way that, you know, watching the TV show Angel, a good show in a lot of ways – but but it's sort of like because it didn't have that that element of the melodrama, I, I found it harder to get into. Yeah, and I, I the high school metaphor works so well for Buffy in the first three seasons, and then and they do decently in college. But it does it loses a little bit of that campy, kind of campy right. poppy um, atmosphere that uh, that a high school can provide, right? And for those of us who were watching it post high school. Um, it was, it was a chance to sort of revisit some what ifs and to be really glad about the things I didn't have to, you know, walk through (laughs) every day anymore too, all at the same time. And that, that made it really fun. No, that's definitely true. That's definitely (laughs) true. I mean, I'm, I'm reminded of, there's a wonderful line in one of the Harry Potter books. I think it's, it's, I think it's the sixth book and I can't remember, but where Ron and Harry are trying to ask out girls to the dance. Um, and Ron sort of makes the point that, you know, he finds it funny, but also rather true that, you know, they've faced down dragons and monsters and asking a girl to a dance is probably the scariest thing they've had to do. <laughs> um, and it just had that, yeah. yeah, it, just, it, it was something I loved about those books. And I think uh, Buffy handles well as uh, quite well as well. Um, I want to talk more about Buffy specifically, but let's just uh, check in on a couple of the other characters. I know Anya is one who you said you really love, particularly because of the kind of moral role she plays in the show. Yeah, and thinking about superheroes and um, and sort of ethics, Joss Whedon and the Buffy kind of crew and cast and writers, I think, do this really nice job with the character of Anya. So for those of you who aren't familiar with the show, Anya started life as a human in the Middle Ages, somewhere in Scandinavia, 
And then she became a vengeance demon as, you know, around the age of 20, 25, something like that. And a vengeance demon is one that wreaks vengeance mostly for women who have been wronged in love. And so she does that for a thousand years and then she messes up a deal and she becomes human again. And so we have this really funny voice in the show of Anya, who is unfamiliar with sort of the nuances of 20th and 21st century culture. And so asks sort of like ridiculous questions about, I don't know who Madonna is or, you know, things like that about pop culture. But then she also was a demon for so long that she makes really amoral statements um, from time to time that are really funny. And so she says what everyone thinks in their head, um, but won't say out loud. But yet she's still a really likable character. Yeah, and I, I think you're really right there. And I, 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 a lot of people have said that Joss Whedon sometimes always writes the same characters, and and to some extent, I think that that's a problem. But to some extent, I love it, and I think Anya's a you know, if you look at Anya in comparison with Jane from Firefly, um, you know, I think there's a couple other examples where Joss often has this character who sort of is kind of the audience voice, but is also the person who is, I, I think you're right, saying things that sound funny. But also is getting the, both the characters and the audience to question the assumptions they're making. You know, like Buffy and Xander will say like, oh, well, you know, we couldn't do this because, of course, it will be – you know, even though we might save 100 people, it would be wrong to have to, to, to kill this person to do that. And Anya is the one to say, well, why? Uh, and, and, and I love that because I think that there's something – to me at least, I think there's something almost dangerous about – when our moral thinking just assumes those things all the time instead of asking, like, is that principle we're operating from really a good principle to start from? Yeah, definitely. And for someone like me who's been working in nonprofits uh-huh. for so long, Anya is this um, extreme capitalist. She loves making money and dreaming up new ways to make money. And at some point, she suggests to Buffy, um, when Buffy's having money troubles, you should charge people for saving their lives. Right. Um, and there's, but there's this kind of ethic that's adopted like in nonprofit worlds and I think in culture in general that if you're in a helping profession, you shouldn't make money at it. Right. Right. You shouldn't be compensated for the ways that you help people. Right. Of course, Buffy says, I can't. This is a, it's a calling. Right. right. Not a job, not a profession. Right. But it does kind of I mean, it's funny. It's just a, it's just a one off joke, but it kind of does probe at some of our deeper assumptions of what we can and can't charge money for. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think and, and the, right? exam- the example you raise is a great one because I, 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 I've worked a long time in the similar not for profit worlds. And I know one of the problems we used to look at is the fact that most of the staff of those worlds comes from some degree of economic privilege, not all by any right. means, but but it is certainly harder to, in part because we have this assumption of that shouldn't be a, a way to make a lot of money, um, you know. And, and there's some value to that assumption, but there's some problems. And I, th- I think you're right. That's a um, they haven't gone into it yet. I will say, but in in I know one of the parts of the Luke Cage and Iron Fist story that will be, I think, developed in a later season is they literally become the heroes for hire. Um, and I know there's some discussion in that sh- – uh, some in the show but some also in, in, in the comic books and in later shows about why shouldn't superheroes charge money for the things they do? Um, so I, I, I think I'm really glad you reminded me that Anya had kind of brought up that issue because I definitely think we're starting to see it now in some of the superhero shows. Anya is kind of like the Charles Barkley of no, <laughs> the I love that. world. You know? <laughs> she'll, she'll just sort of say anything. And I'm kind of reminded that someone at once, you know, once said to, to Charles Barkley or about Charles Barkley, like, well, you're a role model for kids. You shouldn't say those kind of things. And he's like, whoa, who made me a role model for kids? Right. Actually, I'm a sports commentator and I'm funny. Yeah. You well, know, and, and so kind and of thrusting think- roles on people and Anya voices that. Yeah, and I, and I think that's a great point, especially because, you know, as you were sort of saying from the beginning, when Joss was making Buffy, I mean, now we still don't have anywhere near enough female superheroes, but we certainly have a lot more now than we did with Buffy. Um, I, I think when Buffy first came out, there was probably a lot of pressure on her to be like the paragon, the perfect female superhero. Um, and I really appreciate that she's not, you know, that she doesn't. Yes. Um, and that there are other characters, you know, that like you said, she – she does sleep with a guy while she's, you know, still uh, um, not even ma- – I mean I think most of us would say that, you know, that the idea that she should be married to someone before she sleeps with them or something like that is not a, a moral judgment many That's, people Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> but, but certainly even that – I mean I remember even that plot line had a lot of people really angry because they said Buffy is a role model for young girls. So how dare you show that? Um, 
and I know I I really appreciated the fact. And and on the flip side, other people got kind of angry at the idea that the first time she sleeps with a guy, he turns evil. Because what you know is that a really anti-sex message? Or um, yeah, you know, Buffy does not have a lot of sex positivity. Actually, that's Um, definitely true. Yeah, when I stop and think about it, maybe. Um, I, they, they show a really sweet, I think, first sexual encounter for Willow and Oz. Yep. But it's in the face of apocalypse. Yep. Right. And, uh, and then Willow and Tara in later years, I think they do have, they do have a very sweet love story and sex positive and, um, gay positive too. Right. Yeah. And, and, and there, I think, I mean, the, the way that the gay relationship is developed there is, is, is wonderful in a lot of ways. Although of course, you know, the, there is such a trope of a gay character having to die on, you know, right. we, we warned you about spoilers, you know, and, and the yeah. fact that um, <laughs> we won't say who, which one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But um, exactly. Um, so I think that's another important thing. Uh, and I, 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 We're going to dive into the apocalypse topic in a, in a minute or two, but are there any other of the characters from the show you wanted to kind of touch on or talk about? You know, the um, very quickly, I was thinking earlier about the ethics of the villains in the show. Yep. So in every season, they're sort of, they call it the big bad that most of the season is working towards defeating at some point. And I think one, actually, I just, I really like all of them except for season four. <laughs> season four is, is not very good to yeah, me. Uh, at, but, but I really love the mayor uh, in season three. And the mayor is this hundred year old person who's extended his life through nefarious, you know, magical means in order to become a demon that's going to take over the world in a gigantic sort of apocalyptic vision. But the mayor is very funny and he's very moralistic. So he's very tidy. Um, he tells Faith at one point, uh, you know, no talking like that. I'm a family man. Right. Uh, now who's going to kill your little friends? <laughs> and so he's very, yeah, he's very moralistic, but very amoral, right? Very unethical uh, in the way he goes about things. And I think putting those two together is a wonderful way to talk about ethics in our world, you know, by putting them in the voice of this uh, person we're really supposed to dislike. Right. Well, because I think it's a great, it's a great way of reminding us that in the end, these things are very subjective, you know, because I think I, I've talked in past podcasts about how, to me, a good villain has to really believe that he is the hero of his or she, he or she or they have to believe they are the the hero of their own story. Um, and I think the mayor, you're right, is a great example because the mayor would probably say that he is not he's not amoral in the slightest. He has right. a very rigid moral system and an ethical system that he follows. It's one that most of the rest of us, I think, would reject. But by his own moral standards, he's absolutely doing the things that he thinks are right. Um, and, and I love stories like that because I think it, it – in, in the same kind of way as Anya, it, it helps us remember a bit um, you know, that, that, that we can't just take the morals that we hold for granted, that they are still subjective even if they're ones that most of us agree with. Yeah, they are subjective and we see this played out certainly in our daily lives. I mean you know, uh, I do things that – you know. I mean, not, nothing as bad as becoming a superhero, you know, a super demon and taking over the world, right? But um, in all of our daily lives, we have these kind of tensions, right? We have, you know, we have good and bad, you know, within us all. Um, sure. And these moral tensions, and they change over time. And we certainly see this played out in, you know, in politics and religion and uh, you know, lots of different ways in the world today. Um, and so it's really fun to me to have a character like the mayor, like these other, you know, super villains in a world like Buffy where we can project some of those um, some of those fears and some of those ideals and some of those moral questions. To be sure, and, and here's one that we could probably do an entire show on, but I, I wanted to make sure we mention at least briefly, um, is the character of Faith. Because yeah. Faith is one who I think is, um, in a lot of ways, I, I see a pairing of Faith and Spike, you know, in that Faith is a, a fellow you know, Slayer. So like Buffy, she is sort of by definition a good person, a good guy, a a hero. And yet she makes a lot of choices that are clearly not in line with Buffy's moral system. And I think we in the audience can find pretty morally um, problematic. On the flip side, you've got Spike, who is, I mean, the, 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 the title of the show tells you that like, we're supposed to slay vampires. Vampires (laughs) are the villains. And unlike Angel, he's not someone who has, well, until the very end, uh, uh, gotten his soul back. He is a vampire without a soul. And yet, in a lot of ways, he becomes not necessarily a good guy, but certainly a much more morally gray character than just a, the villain. And, and becomes, a, uh, in some ways, certainly a hero and a friend and a lover to, to people in the show. Um, 
So I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts there, but especially those two characters and how they kind of like play with that idea of the hero and the villain. You know, I kind of live for Spike, so thanks for bringing him up. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> and for those of you, if you're if you're thinking about watching Buffy or Angel for the first time, if you make it through to season five of Angel, you'll be really rewarded with a lot of good, like, Spike yep. show episodes. Uh, it's really, really great. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, Spike is this sort of morally ambiguous character at the time when he starts to develop a conscience in the show um, in season five. I would say, right? And so you know that he's kind of soulless, but yet um, he starts to love Buffy and we like him for that. And some of his actions toward her are very sweet. Others are very reprehensible Yep. Uh, all at the same time, right? And he kind of embodies like a lot of people, the good and the bad, right? Making his own sort of ethical choices. And he's making ethical choices without the guidance of having a soul yeah. all at the same time, and, right? And I love that because I, I admit I was a little frustrated by the whole like – vampires don't have a soul thing because i think that there's to me there's something problematic kind of what that echoed for me is you know like you know ages and ages ago there was i mean today we still see mirrors of this but not as blatant at least i hope at least in except in some sectors to be sure but you know it used to be at the time of slavery i mean there were arguments that black people didn't have souls or at least did not have the same kind of souls as humans or things like that and and so anytime I hear an argument that says, well, this this other thing doesn't have the same moral weight that humans do just by definition and therefore can be killed, you know, vampires are obviously the enemy. But but it always kind of it, it, it I, I saw that as problematic and I, I loved the way they used Spike to play with that to sort of say, OK, well, even if he is this soulless vampire, is there still some good in him? You know, is there something maybe wrong about this idea of like a clear black and white, you have a soul and therefore you're good or you don't have a soul and therefore you're bad. Yeah, I, I agree with that completely. And one thing the show does um, in a, in a kind of campy way, right. Is they put a literal face on evil, right. So right. all the evil characters literally have like bumpy ridges in their eyebrows or they look like demons. And I remember I was watching an episode, I mean a long time ago now and a, a friend knocked on my door and came in and it was on and she said, oh, my gosh, what is this show? And they just have demons, like, out in public. Like, that's ridiculous. I was like, well, that's part of the point of the show is that demons are in plain sight all the time, right? But then they make easy targets, and they're easy to kill. Right. Um, and part of the show, very carefully, never has Buffy kill an actual human being. And the time she comes close with Faith, Faith ends up not being killed but is in a coma. Right. As a result, right? So they never make Buffy actually have to make that moral choice. Or she makes the choice, but it doesn't, the, the follow through doesn't happen. And so, yeah, I think you're right. With Spike, um, they show that those moral choices can be a little more ambiguous because actually it turns out that we come to really, really like this soulless character. Um, and I really like what you brought up about how humans have tried to use the soul analogy to dehumanize other human beings. Yep. Um, yeah, throughout time. And one of my areas of research is, in fact, slavery in the ancient world. Mm. Um, and when I was writing my dissertation on slavery in the ancient world, I mean, there were some days where I had to, like, go do something very happy for myself, because <laughs> it does get really hard when you see, um, you know, the way that people are treated because they're thought of as less than human. Oh, right. Sure. So, who, yeah. So who's making those kind of ethical choices in the world? Right. Yeah, who's getting to make those definitions? And I think the show doesn't wrestle with that question on a on a big meta level, but it we do see it through some threads, like with Spike and with Faith, as a, a kind of a sub a sub theme. To be sure, and I'll, I'll just give a, a brief plug. One, I know on, on an earlier episode of the podcast um, called "Who Shall We Kill?" This was actually the topic we talked about, Paul and I, uh, my normal guest host. Um, just because of, you know, how often is it that like. If a if a movie wants us to know that the aliens are terrible, they will they will make them look ugly and terrible, you know, so that we feel okay killing them. Or you know, it's okay. Like I think there's always some interesting questions about what are the ways that superhero shows make us feel okay rooting for the hero to slaughter these other living things because they're aliens or because you know the I think the conclusion we came to is that the human who can most easily be killed is a Nazi. You know, because Nazis right. are seen as so morally reprehensible for good reason. Like, you know, Captain America killing Nazis is almost never going to be seen as morally problematic because right. those are the people who are the easiest for us to justify. You know, and same way with, uh, you know, the, in the Avengers movie, the aliens who invade 
they look uh, they have that same kind of like r- crazy scary look like you said from the demons in in Buffy. So yeah, I, I'm really glad you you, you were talking about that because I think there's something really important about um, the the way we play with that idea of who can or can't be seen as morally worthwhile. Yes, and for those of you who are kind of in the know, I, one of my favorite episodes in season six is Tabula Rasa, uh-huh. where everyone forgets they they all have amnesia, and though so Spike, when his head turns into Bumpy and he realizes he's a vampire. He says, oh, well, maybe I'm a good vampire. Maybe I'm a vampire with a soul dedicated to righting wrongs. And so he makes himself into Angel in his own imagination in a really, really funny way. Um, And one thing I do appreciate about, especially about Buffy a little more so than Angel, is that they do laugh at themselves and their own sort of moral moral superiority. Yeah. No, I think it's definitely true. I think the show does a great job of that. We've been dancing around this topic of apocalypse and apocalypticism. Which I think is 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 really central to the whole Buffy story, um, in terms of you know Buffy is created because these people see a potential apocalypse, and what I mean that is a um, a potential end of the world threat, um, and that's a word that I know gets gets tossed around a lot in pop culture, um, but it, but it has some really important like historical and and biblical roots. Um, that, that Katie, I know you've done a lot of research and a lot of thinking about, especially in terms of Buffy. So do you want to start by just telling us a little bit about um, what do we mean by apocalypticism, both in terms of the kind of original meaning of the word and, and how it's being used today? Sure. Uh, let me start with how we actually use it today. Um, and I, when we talk about apocalyptic books, movies, whatever the media is, usually what we mean today is that there's a threat, generally a global threat, to human life or to all of creation, like to the global world. Um, and that apocalypse is to be stopped at all cost. And so that's certainly true in Buffy. It's true in the Avenger movies. It's true in the um, lots of different books, right? So that, that big threat that could threaten to end the world as we know it has to be stopped. So it's always seen as a negative thing. But the ancient concept is actually a little bit different. So the word uh, apocalypse literally means to remove the veil. And when we remove Mm. the veil, we see the spiritual realm that is just on the other side. Right. So an apocalypse usually is a vision or a dream or some kind of communicated um, text that a person sees and then writes down about the actual spiritual realities that are happening all around the person. Usually in the ancient world, of course, it was uh, a man. Right. And so, yeah, so those become revealed. And that's how we get the name of the last book of the Bible, Revelation. Mm. So so that's the idea that 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 it's a a person who is having a, a an apocalypse vision. You usually the apocalypse is communicated in the form of a vision or a dream. Right. And then written down later. Um, so ancient Jews have a, we have a lot of apocalypses from ancient Jewish writings and, of course, from ancient Christian writings as well. And so I do want to give listeners just a little tidbit. And I apologize in advance because this is now going to drive you all crazy for the rest of your lives. Uh, because the final book in the Bible is one revelation. It's one apocalypse. It's one vision that the seer John has. But in movies and in TV shows and almost everywhere, I hear this out loud, they'll say, well, the book of revelations. Um, so they get that wrong. And so Hollywood, I'm just letting you know now that like <laughs> I'm available for hire. So you can start to get this thing right. And the way I usually see TV shows refer to the book of revelation is very shallow. Um, they take a random verse out of the book, throw it on the screen and say something terrible is about to happen and we have to stop it. And they really miss the deeper meaning um, of apocalypse, right. uh, which I'm happy to, to talk a little more about. Um, apocalypses usually in the ancient world arise from people who feel that they are being oppressed. They don't feel they be, they're being oppressed. They are being oppressed or they at least perceive themselves as being oppressed. And so they envision this apocalypse as um, as a destructive event, as a world-ending event. But after the apocalypse um, is when justice is restored. Hmm. So apocalypses are also means for um, the things that have been done that are wrong to people to be made right, for them to be redeemed, and for them to live in a new reality that is one where justice actually prevails. And, and, and sort of to clarify somewhat, because this is fascinating to me. Um, 
the um, when you talk about that word, obviously it has come to have real meaning in the Jewish and in Christian wor- worlds um, uh, because of the religious significance. But is it a word that would have been used n- but by others in the Greek or Roman or other ancient worlds, um, not ne- not necessarily part of those religious communities? So the word itself, we actually get from Revelation 1-1, the apocalypse or the revelation of John. Mm-hmm. Um, so the word itself, you know, was just a Greek word. Okay. Um, so it would have been used as a genre. This is a genre that does cross other um, ancient writings. So we have Persian apocalypses. We have some Greek apocalypses. We do have a few not full on apocalypses, but sort of apocalyptic light Latin writings mm. as well. They are not as fully developed. Um, at least the ones we have left are not as fully developed as the Jewish and Christian ones, because for obvious reasons, those were of interest to Christians in Europe and Africa and the Middle East um, during the rise of Christianity. So they continue to be copied down. Right. Uh, so the other ones, we do have other apocalypses, but they're they're just not as well known. And the ones that we have left are. Are, um, a little more scattered. Right. So, well, but as a genre, yeah, they were, other people were envisioning similar things that, that Christians and Jews adopted and then turned into their own genre. Right. And I mean, as you said, I mean, because it's been Christians recording the history for so long, you know, it's not surprising that that's now what we know most about. I, I do know, and I'll, I'll say at the beginning, I'm not an expert of this by any means, um, uh, that, that, um, People who know Norse mythology, Norse religious mythology, or people who just know the Thor um, comic books really well, know that you know the, the upcoming movie Ragnarok. It, it, you know, it's named that because there is a um, in in um, the the Norse pagan mythology, there is an understanding of what I guess you might think of as an apocalyptic event, uh, Ragnarok, which is their understanding of sort of the, the end of the world, the destruction of the world. So certainly, it's an idea that I, I, I know. Certainly, some other religious traditions often have similar things. Um, but but I think it's really helpful for us to hear what are the very particular um, roots of this word that, that now has come so much into pop culture. Um, so, so that's where I'd want you to go ne- uh, talk next a bit is, is what, what, what do you think is the significance of that shift in terms of the way we see the word now? You know, the shift is interesting to me because um, the way that we use it today, there's not often a lot of room for redemption. Right. Right. For the hopefulness. The hopefulness is in stopping the apocalypse, not in letting it occur. Right. right? So there's never this sort of radical undermining of uh, sort of the reality or the world as we know it. Whereas the ancient Jews and Christians who at the time were very, um, very small minority populations, right, in the ancient world, they were laughed at, they were made fun of. They really envisioned a future where not that they would be sort of rulers of the world, um, you're not trying to turn the tables. You're trying to right the wrongs. Right. I mean, right. So when Buffy stops the apocalypse, they're never righting wrongs. Right. It's always they're about just preventing things from getting worse. Yeah. Continue. Yeah. Preventing things from getting worse, continuing as things are. Um, I, I would say with the exception of Angel, like season four, um, when the the I've forgotten the I've forgotten her name now, um, where the woman who was also in Firefly. Oh, I I know the person you know t- yeah. about. Yeah, the big bad, right? She actually does create a utopia paradise on Earth, but it's uh, because it's not people's free will, right? It's not their choice, and right. so um, that is where a new reality of sort of pseudo justice is created. But they believe that the cost of human choice is too high, and so they reverse it. Well, and it's interesting, and I, I'm a little freeballing here, so so maybe I'm 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 missing something. But it, as I'm thinking about it, there are certainly superhero stories I can think of. That might fit more into that older version of the the word apocalypse. Um, uh, the Matrix is the one that first comes to mind, um, but also Star Wars to some extent. You know where the heroes aren't trying to defend the current world from something much worse happening; they're trying to completely subvert the order of the world as it is to replace it with something new. You know, the to destroy the Empire in Star Wars and and bring in a new era of justice, or in Matrix even it goes even deeper since the in the, the movie The Matrix or the trilogy The Matrix, you really have an entire reality that's being defined by the machines and, and our heroes are trying to basically completely destroy that so that a new world can be built. Yeah, I think so. And uh, those are good examples of apocalyptic or sort of post-apocalyptic that do draw on this thread of hope. Right. 
that Apocalypse can represent. But what is very interesting as a genre, you know, I think the piece about hope is often missing, but not always in some of these some of these um, worlds that we're talking about. But there's common features of apocalypses that actually do translate, and I think very unknowingly. Um, you know, I doubt that. I don't know for sure. Joss Whedon is a really smart man and I'm a fan. So maybe uh-huh. he has, you know, read these books about like theories of apocalypse in the ancient world. Um, but I think it's more so that the genre has taken root in a human imagination, especially in the West. And we do this unconsciously, mm. right? We can reproduce sort of the features of apocalypticism without knowing that we're doing it. And so it replicates itself. So like, there's like, you know, there's a list of like 13 attributes of, of apocalyptic writing. Right. And, uh, you know, scholars will take ancient texts and measure, you know, do they have seven or eight or 13 of these, but a few of them I think actually are relevant to pop culture, to what we talk about today. So one of those is a hero takes a journey and is guided by an otherworldly being to show him or her sort of the vision that we're talking about. Right. Um, well, in the case of Buffy, she does have these otherworldly guides. Um, she has dreams and visions. The first Slayer serves as a guide for her. She has a dream where Faith serves as a guide for her. Mm. And I would say Giles, he's not an otherworldly being, but he is this figure that has access to the world that she doesn't know. Well, and I think that this- and guides her. It, I think there's something really interesting there, especially because, you know, when I first think about it, I think that for the most part, Buffy is a story about just stopping, you know, defending the status quo and stopping things from getting actively worse. But there is a way in which the Buffy story is also kind of a subverting of the order, especially at the very end, because and I think we should get into this in a little bit uh, specifically, but like one of the most problematic parts for Buffy about the whole situation is that she's been created by this council of men um, to like, who are telling, you know, all the slayers what to do. And so the kind of the order of the world is such that, you know, the, the woman hero has to save the world according to the way that the men tell them to, and that there can only be one slayer at a time. And the sort of great, you know, end event of the, of the last episode of the last, last season is Buffy subverting that and is, you know, releasing the power with Willow's help and with everyone's help so that they can all be slayers. Um, and, and, and so I'm wondering how, how, how would that fit in? Because there there seems an element of even though for the most part it is that kind of stop an apocalypse, not let the bad thing happen, there is a real fundamental like breaking of the structure of the world of slayers and, and changing it into a more hopeful thing, a more just yeah. thing. I, yes, thank you. And I agree completely. And one of the reasons I really appreciate this show and the way that it uses the apocalyptic genre is because it does it smartly um, and it doesn't, it's not shallow. Right. In the way that it conceives of apocalypse, unlike many, many, many TV shows uh, that I see uh, on that reference, kind of reference apocalyptic thinking and vocabulary. So I think Buffy at the very end, they do remake the world. Um, and throughout the series, she is doing things on her own terms, sometimes successfully, sometimes unsuccessfully. Uh, and so that's the part of the genre sort of flipping that Joss Whedon does very well and that I appreciate. Um, and I think that starts uh, midway through season three when she tells the council she's not going to work for them anymore. Right. Right. And th- th- so then she's rogue. She doesn't have a watcher anymore. Right. So she does, as a young woman, starts to make her own choices, define her own reality, um, make her own plans, you know, with the consultation of others, but ultimately making her own choices. Yeah. And I think at the end, it is hopeful. And I know a lot of fans were not crazy about the ending. I actually rather liked it. Um, and at the very end, you see what was Sunnydale as a big hole in the ground. And you see just the glimmer of a smile on her face, knowing that the future could be better. Right. No, and I, I think that's a great point um, because of that idea of hope and also because of that idea of, you know, I, I, like I said, I think one of the hardest parts of her story is the idea that she's supposed to be this hero on other people's terms and so that she's fighting not only the evil she's supposed to be fighting but also the way she's supposed to be fighting it, um, you know, in terms of like someone else doing it, um, especially because – and I think this is a, gr- a great way to um, to get into this specifically, you know – one of the things that that she's asked to do and, and and literally does in season five is to constantly sacrifice herself, you know, for the for the good of everyone else. 
Um, and I think that's something we see a lot in apocalypticism, especially the the modern idea of apocalypticism, yeah. where it's the world is going to end. We have to do something. So, so what what's your take on this idea of self sacrifice and like the the way that apocalypse kind of is used as a plot device to justify this person has to sacrifice themselves? Yeah, I think that's a constant theme of the show. I think it's a constant theme of our culture uh-huh. as well, um, and that the show kind of reflects that. So Buffy is the chosen one. She's the only slayer in the whole world, like we said, until the last 10 minutes of the of the series finale. Um, and so she is constantly called on to make, uh, make the choices, A, to make the choices, the hard choices about who lives, who dies, um, when is that. Uh, and she's in her own sort of personal self-sacrifice as well. And so within the show, she does self-sacrifice um, and at the end of season five, giving the kind of ultimate self-sacrifice that she can, you know, which is her life, um, which is referenced, uh, it's foreshadowed definitely throughout the, through the two seasons before then in a very kind of apocalyptic way, right? Giving these signs, importance and futures and prophecies. Um, and so Buffy in the end, um, she solves this problem, as we said, by creating a world of slayers. Right. Right. Where the burden is not all on here, but this kind of ethical question of what is enough and what is not enough. And when do we get personal lives is I think very prevalent. We expect politicians to sacrifice their personal lives, right. For the common good. Right. We expect them to lay bare everything about their past uh, for the common good so that we can know that. Um, We certainly expect everyone in nonprofit worlds Oh, yeah. To do that, right? To sacrifice their time, uh, sacrifice their own well-being, at times their health, Mm -hmm. right? For the good of the people they're helping. Well, the problem with that is, and this is something we all know, there's always more to do. Right. There's always something else we can be doing, right? Whatever we're doing is never going to be enough to save the world. I mean, I've, especially in the most recent Avengers movies and now the Captain America movie, I've often sort of wished someone would sort of grab Tony Stark and say, listen – why don't you take some time and go see a therapist about the PTSD yeah. <laughs> you're dealing with? Right. Be, be, and, you know, like in, in the not-for-profit world, at least, there is some element of like reminding people, you know, self-care. Take some time for self-care. No one – we don't give superheroes ever that opportunity. You know, no one ever goes up to Bruce Wayne and says, you know, listen, like how about you process your feelings about the death of your parents a little bit? Yeah. Not, like, <laughs> right. But, but in part because there's always the Joker. There's always the – you know, there's – there's always some new scheme that's happening. Um, and and I, I think, you know, it's interesting how often this idea of sacrifice is expected of our heroes, sometimes quite literally, the heroes who expect, you know, who need to die for someone else, sometimes more metaphorically when it's the hero who has to give up a potential love or a family or, you know, they have to give up the life they would want for the, for the help of others. Um you know, and in the case of the Avengers, they have um, Hawkeye is the one character who does step away, right, for like sake of personal time and family, and he is the most boring character to me. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, right? Like, I'm not compelled by him, and so it's a compelling, it's kind of a compelling ethical question, right? This kind of theme of sacrifice. But I would like to see Thor and Loki get some like family systems therapy, <laughs> <laughs> right? Now, you know that <laughs> other problems. Maybe even bring Odin into it because I think some of the fatherhood yes. there could could be helpful. <laughs> no, but I, I think you make a great point, especially even uh, with Hawkeye. Spoilers now for Marvel Civil War. Um, you know he he is dragged into the Civil War, and he it's interesting. I think he makes a joke or two about how oh you know I thought. The characters kind of joke at him, like, weren't you retired? And he's like, yeah, I wish I was retired, you know. But, but you know, at one point someone asks him, what are you doing here? And his response is disappointing my daughter. Um, yeah. And I think that's – it is funny in the moment, but it's also sad and it's very telling because what underlies that joke is, well, he could retire if everything was fine, but because there was another potential problem, not not even, I think, an apocalypse in Civil War, just another potential problem, of course he can't retire. Of course he has to, you know, strap on the bow and arrow and come back into the fight. Um, and I think that's something we see a lot with these superheroes um, in normal situations or, you know, in, in bad situations, but especially in the situations that are thought of as apocalyptic, as the world's going to end. Yeah. And, you know, do we do, do we do this together? Do we do it alone? The superhero myth 
right? The superhero um, complex, literally, is that it has to be done alone, right? right? And wh- one reason I really appreciate the ending of Buffy is because I think the answer to that question at the very end is it actually takes a village. And that's a model that I try to live with in my personal life, um, where I don't always succeed. Sometimes I do get superhero complexes, too. Uh, most of us do. But, you know, at the end with Buffy, I think it's, um, you know, we, we can all share this burden together. Yeah. No, and I think I think that's a great point, especially because even with some of these team up movies, it's now no like there's always the character, you know, in Avengers, in Civil War and all. There's always the character who's like, I can do this completely alone. And eventually he or she might realize like they need a couple of friends. But there's still that idea of like we small band of heroes can still do everything. Um, Buffy's. I'm trying to think of others where it really is about that idea of literally empowering like huge numbers of people um, to do the work instead of just a small group. Um, I can't think of any offhand. I, I'm I'm sure there are probably others, but I think Buffy is definitely one of the best examples of that. Yeah, and it's it, it doesn't make for quite as compelling storyline, right? Like we really, really just human beings. We really like the single hero or right. small small band of scrappy heroes together who are a little unusual coming forward and saving the day. And I'm one of them. I mean, I'm one of them. I don't necessarily think it's the healthiest model for like self-actualization, you know, among, among us uh, as regular human beings who are not superheroes, but it's, it makes for really good storytelling. Oh, to be sure. And I think that that's, I think that's often one of the tensions we're always going to deal with in, in this kind of, you know, we're bringing deep philosophical analysis to what is in the end entertainment. Um, and I love it and I am very entertained by it. And I, I think they do some great messaging but I think that's an important tension of, you know, on the one hand, the individual makes the better story. And, you know, uh, a, a TV show about a team of a thousand people is going to be impossible to do because you're never going to get to know any of those people enough to really care about them. Um, but at the same time, I think as we're doing, it's important to think about what are the kind of problematic messages that can lead us to. Um, go ahead. Oh, no, no. We, I was There's a really sweet moment in season seven where – uh, Dawn thinks she might be one of the potential slayers, and I am so not a Dawn fan. Like every episode that's about her, I kind of want to run screaming from the room. I'm I'm with you there. Oh yeah. So, uh, but anyway, but this one episode is sweet, despite her being kind of one of the central yeah features of the particular episode. But in the end, she has to make as a regular human being, you know, even though she started life as a ball of energy or whatever. Um, in the end, she realizes she really has to take a step back. She's not one of the potential slayers. And she fulfills her role sort of as the supporting researcher or whatever it is. And Xander sees her and goes up to her and tells her what a hero he thinks she is. Right. In the end. And I find that moment very sweet, very compelling. And so this show does manage to find small ways to lift up, you know, um, those people who are not superheroes. Um, and that might be continued further in the comics, which I haven't really pursued as much as well. No, I, I think you're right. And I think that's another um, – it's another really good thing to and, – and, and the Avengers do that somewhat in that you know you have these people with incredible powers or incredible technology. And then you have Hawkeye and Black Widow who don't really have any powers. They just have incredible training, but they're still just as vital to the team. Um, and I think – and even um, particularly the Captain America um, Winter Soldier movie. They did a great job of, you know, having Captain America specifically like reach out to the people, you know, still within Shield who are fighting Hydra, and calling on them to, you know, that each of them could do their part. And there's that wonderful scene where um, I, I forget the character's name, but he's played by the guy who plays Abed in Community, you know, and he's he's really just a oh yeah, uh, he's really just kind of like a, a, a desk, you know, he he's one of a hundred technicians in a room. Uh, that helps to operate the the shield, you know, technology that Hydra is trying to take over, and he spends a minute, you know, step standing up to the bad guy and saying, "No, I'm not going to let you do this." And I, I, if I remember, it's not very effectual in the end, but still, it's, a, it's sort of a wonderful illustration of how that can help. And him doing that helps to inspire others. And so I think, yeah, there, there's something great there about how the people with powers make the best stories in some way, or at least, you know, the TV often shows us that they do. But there can be some great stories and some great heroism shown by all people. Um, Yeah, one of my favorite moments in um, Harry Potter, uh, in the book and in the movie, is in the first one, in the first movie. At the very very end of the movie, Neville stands up and tries to stop Harry and Hermione and Ron from moving forward to go face, you know, 
whatever it is that they're going to at that particular moment in time. And then they zap him and they freeze him and he kind of falls over so he can't move. But he ends up winning. He ends up for their house getting the most points because he's awarded like a thousand points for his bravery and standing up to his friends. Right. No, very I, end. And it just, and like, every time I watch that, my heart just melts a little with, like, love for Neville, you know? And, yeah, so they find we find ways to bring this in. It's a wonderful moment, to be sure. Um, well, and uh, another thing I want to ask about, kind of pulling us back a bit to the apocalypticism thing, is, so in our modern idea of, you know, apocalypse means the end of the world, which certainly is a big part of Buffy, um, almost every season, I think every season it seems like, you know, the, there's a potential end of the world. Yeah, one of I the think things so. it—that's often used to justify. Like, the, I, I think one of the the interesting questions that that Buffy and the rest of the team often faces is, okay, we have these, you know, we have these things that we think are right and good, the things that that an Anya character would 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 question, but we just know in our hearts these are right. But but now the end of the world might happen, and so. Do we still want to hold on to our moral principles, even if like I'd I love to hear you talk just about about sort of what happens with apocalypticism when you know characters are facing an apocalypse and now having to question you know what 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 are we willing to do like as you said like are we willing to pay any price including making moral choices we might normally be okay with to stop an apocalypse. Yeah, I think this, again, is a central sort of point um, of the show and I think of apocalyptic um, genre in general. So the end of the world is coming. So the real question is, who can we kill in order to stop it? Right. Right. And is that justifiable or not? Um, Almost always the answer is that it is justifiable. And usually the person in, in command, superhero, whoever it is in this, you know, in these apocalyptic superhero genres is the one who makes that call. Buffy gives a very sort of a passion speech in season. She gives a lot of speeches in the show, but in <laughs> in season seven, in the episode "Selfless," where Anya um, she thinks she's going to have to kill Anya, who's become a demon again. Right. She gives a really impassioned speech to uh, Xander, who's of course opposing this this choice about how um, it always comes down to her. She always has to make the hard choices. She recognizes that it's a little bit of a morally gray. Uh, area for her but in the end she does choose to kill her she ends up not uh but that's not because she made the choice not to it's just because it happened in a different way right so yeah i think apocalypses have the potential to bring out like the very best but also the very worst in humanity right mm-hmm. no and so yeah oh go ahead uh, yeah i i think you're completely right there and i think that that's um you know as as you were just saying that i, I remember that moment and i think it's a powerful one but in part because I think it, it, it reminds me of, you know, as problematic as the Watcher Council was and we both celebrate Buffy breaking free of that Watcher Council, at the same moment, a moment like that is what reminds you that now Buffy has no accountability to anyone except herself right. and what she thinks is right. And that the – in theory, the point of the Watcher Council is like for her to have someone she can go to to say like, do you know, should I kill Anya in this situation or should I not? Because maybe I need someone who's not so personally invested in it. Um, and the Watcher Council obviously was terrible for that. But I think what Buffy really and, and she admits that the, the 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 terrible situation she's placed in is she doesn't have that. So she now has to make this horrible choice of, you know, balancing one life against others and, and a life that she knows versus, you know, the the others who she may not connect with and things like that. Definitely. And this show makes, um, again, makes a particular point to never have Buffy kill another human being, right? She kills things that are pretending to be human, like vampires and demons, other things like that. Um, And so they're, they're very sort of carefully conscript the show so that we never have to watch her actually kill another human being. However, other characters in the show do, and I do think that they deal with those consequences. They give them that this show gives them the weight that they deserve. Um, there's actual psychological ramifications to killing another human being, and when there's not, when there's a character who doesn't show remorse, um, we're supposed to expect intervention, right, on behalf of that character. You know, so in the in sort of framing an apocalyptic 
Um, this show manages to get through without killing actual humans, but they till it, they kill a ton of things that look like humans, right? That they've given the name of evil. So the danger of course, for us today is that we, as we were talking about earlier, can dehumanize other people, um, in the name of something that feels apocalyptic to us. Oh, to be sure. I mean, and yeah, I'm thinking especially like, once we've seen what happens to Spike, you know, that there is – he does still do horribly terrible things, including to Buffy, you know, toward the end of their relationship to each other. They don't want to uh, – that that I'm not going to spoil, uh, but but it, but it's a very important plot point. Um, but um, the – the um, but, but I think it's interesting because, you know, so we see in the character of Spike that there is in this world at least a potential for, you know, a vampire to not necessarily just be completely – by definition, the worst thing possible. But yet, one of the things that Buffy does is kill vampires like the moment they're popping out of the grave. Yeah. You know, before, and, and, and you almost kind of wonder, like, now that Buffy has met Spike, you know, the show doesn't go into this, and I can understand why, because it doesn't want to, like, you know, question its first four seasons of existence. But but is there, would there be a part of her that would start to say, you know, I was killing vampires before they even really realized they were vampires because I just knew a vampire is evil and wrong and bad because that's what I was taught. But is the, you know is that problematic thinking? Do I need to question that somewhat? Should I have been you just like you know waiting in the grave for the the vampire to pop out so I could kill him the moment he did or she did? Yeah, so they we really need like a school for vampire redemption, you know, <laughs> for sure. Like, <laughs> so they can right, yeah, so they can come in and make learn how to make their own moral choices. And um, yes, I think Spike is a good example of that, and Anya is too to some extent, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, I mean, I really, I really love the message, you know, within those two characters that people are redeemable, right. Yeah, people are redeemable. We 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 do think we do things that are unforgivable, but we're we're still able to um, come through sometimes. No, to be sure, and I think that that's a um, I I think that that's to me one of the most problematic things of the apocalypse ideas is that we'll often be able to think like, okay, you know, this person we need to stop their evil plans, but let's not try to kill them because maybe they can be redeemed. But once you say there's an apocalypse. Then it's easier to start saying, you know, we don't have time to try to save this person's soul. We have to just kill them before they can push the red button. You know, we don't have time to try and appeal to this person's morality so that they don't do this terrible thing. We're so close to the end of the world. And and I, you know, I've never personally been faced with an apocalypse. So I can't right. say how <laughs> I would think in those kind of ways. And I think that there isn't, you know, like – on a, I try not to have utilitarianism be what guides my ethics, but but on some level, like ending one life to save five billion, I, I, that's a moral calculus I can probably get behind. Right. But but I think that the the problem when when so many of our stories are so apocalyptical in that way is that it it means that we're always acting as though everything is an end of the world situation. Um, right. Everything's an emergency all the time, and. Often in our, you know, apart from the story world in our in our daily world, we sometimes see apocalypses where they're not there. Oh yeah. Well, and, and right? here's where I, I, to go back to what we were saying before, this is where I love the idea of high school as the metaphor for everything else, because I think, you know, I remember being in high school and one person didn't laugh at my joke and it felt like the end of, you know, like I, I was going to become a little bit lower on a social ladder for yeah. ten minutes one day. To the high school mind, that can feel like the end of the world. Um, right. Yeah. It's sometimes hard to see beyond the, your immediate future. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I resonate and I remember yeah. as well. <laughs> well, and, and, well. Oh, go ahead. Well, and in kind of thinking about our, um, let me draw out just very briefly one of the critical differences between ancient apocalypse and apocalypse today, the way we talk about it. Go for it. The ancient apocalypses from which we're talking about, you know, that we've been drawing uh, for this genre, ancient Jewish and Christian apocalypses, are produced by tiny minority um, people, uh, mostly in the Roman Empire and some other empires as well, um, who see themselves as the eventual uh, victors and people who will be restored to justice. Today, so they're a very minority group. Today, the perpetrators of the apocalyptic kind of myth, especially in a, a sort of po- a global political world, 
are in the majority. Mm. So when a majority population promotes apocalyptic thinking, it has a very, very different end result. Oh, yes. And becomes much, much more dangerous um, and can be much more insidious. And so there's, a, there's been quite a bit of scholarship that has been done um, about American politics in the 80s under Reagan. Reagan himself was not particularly apocalyptic or, you know, uber-religious. Um, but Nancy, of course, was very into spiritualism and um, made people really nervous in Washington. So Reagan surrounded himself to kind of, partly, I think, to kind of counteract Nancy's um, sort of spiritual leanings that made people uncomfortable. But he really surrounded himself in his cabinet with very apocalyptic Christians. Right. And that very much influenced, for instance, if they think the world is about to end, um, that influences the way you think about the environment. You're like, well, there's no need to try to save it. Right. Well, and if, it, it, end, if you yeah. see the Soviet Union as an apocalyptic existential threat, you're a lot more willing to say like, well, you know, let, let's jack up the nuclear program because the, the – that need is so much stronger. Yes. And, um, but, you know, this is the kind of thing in my professional life I help people think through. I see on Facebook just all the time, oh, look, the signs, they're here, they're here. I don't try to take it down on Facebook, but, you know, privately, individually, I, you know, if you're having concerns about apocalyptic signs from the Bible, please reach out to me. I can help you think through <laughs> what that might be and kind of, you know, find, find different ways to approach it. It is really not helpful in our daily lives to approach the world uh, as, as apocalyptic. Well, no, and it's true. Yep. I, mean, I think that there's in um, some of the mental health work that I've done, we often talk about this term catastrophizing, which is where, yeah. you know, and I, I see this in mental health. I also see it when I, I'm a poker player, you know, and the like, you know, you have one draw that goes badly against you. It's easy to start thinking like they always go bad against me. You know, they, they I always remember that. Um, and I, I can see that on a personal level. But but also I think that I hadn't heard that point before, but I think you're so right when the when the story of the apocalypse is now being told by a group that is already in power, a now we're definitely into the realm of the apocalypse is supposed to defend is the thing that's going to attack the status quo. There's never a thought about apocalypse could be good, could be changing things. But but it also makes you realize that if there is a potential apocalypse keeping the, the people in power in power, if, if they're what's keeping you safe, that's a great reason to keep them in power. You know, and I think um, both in fiction, like in 1984, but also in our real world, we, we're seeing examples, like you said, with Reagan, but also continuing, you know, the the way that um, uh, first communism and now terrorism or immigrants or gays are all being used as this kind of like, this is the apocalyptic threat. This is the threat to America. This is the threat to the world. And so therefore, we have to do these terrible things. Um it's really kind of scary seeing how that that kind of thinking is continuing to be replicated. It does. And the danger, you know, which I think we've pointed out is that those people then become ones, you know, who are less than human. Right. They're they're right. without souls and therefore expendable. Right. To be sure. I mean, and I'll, I'll even right. say like, you know, I I, <laughs> I, I send my uh, a recent podcast that I obviously have my own biases, but I, I would even say that I, I've seen it some on the other side. Like I'm I'm by no means uh, um whatever my own thoughts on, on a potential Trump presidency might be, I, I, I do see sometimes where I where I see people talking about like, well, we can't let Trump be president. And so anything and everything to do to stop that is OK. Right. I, even there, yeah. I'm starting to think like, is that I, I personally, I think a Trump presidency could be a pretty horrible thing. But 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 when it becomes that level of apocalyptic thought that justifies any and everything, I, even there is where it makes me sort of stop and question and be like, wait a minute, how much are we? kind of going to that well too easily. Yeah, definitely. And apocalypticism is not uh, is not reserved for any one sort of particular relig religious political spectrum. Right. Right. Yeah, it can manifest in lots of different ways, uh, lots of different ways. And, and um, but yeah, on all ends and every point in between on that spectrum. Well, and this is where and I think it's interesting that um, uh, Joss Whedon also told this story. Um, I, I, I don't I, I wonder if you think this is true. Um, whether or not it's intentional, Avengers 2 Age of Ultron, which is a movie that I've often been very critical of, but I, I think in this it's brilliant, makes a very interesting point about apocalypticism. Because what you basically have in that movie is Tony Stark has he has had a revelation. He's he's seen the alien army and he's terrified of it. And now his fear 
of a potential apocalypse down the road is so strong that in an attempt to stop potential apocalypses, he creates Ultron, which leads to a very real potential apocalypse that is only barely averted. Right. Um, And I, I think there's something really interesting there about the character who is so afraid of the apocalypse that he almost, in an attempt to stop it, almost creates it. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And um, the in the ancient concept of apocalypses, they're always avertable if people, not always, I'm, I'm really drawing over the broad, broad swath here, but they are avertable if humans can act the way that they're supposed to act. Right. Right. If humans can enact justice themselves, there is no need for an apocalypse, right? The apocalypse has only come because gross misconduct, you no know, gross injustices are being done. So this idea um, of gross misconduct to stop it wouldn't really even be a part of that kind of thinking. You know, in, in, in my particular way of thinking about apocalypses as we translate them today, no. Right. Um, and really, in the and I'm not. It's not like I've read every apocalypse of the ancient world, but in the ones that I'm kind of familiar with, um, it, it does seem to be a train. Like once it's on the tracks, you know, it keeps on going. But also, the group of people who are being experiencing injustice don't have enough power to really influence, uh, you know, sort of influence behavior of other people too. Uh, and that's very different than us today. Right. No, I think it's definitely right. a great point. So I know we've been about an hour or so, and I want us to wrap up. Um, uh, there's been a great discussion, though, and, and obviously just kind of scratched the surface. Um, are there any other kind of last points about Buffy or apocalypticism that you want to make sure we touch on? Hey, you know what? The only thing I'll say is um, it's just a week or two after Halloween, about not even that long, less than a week after Halloween, and uh, I had a Buffy episode on uh, as I was receiving trick-or-treaters, and some teenagers came to my door, and they kind of looked up at the scene, and they said, what? Oh, I'm, what? there's a, you have some movie on in the background. I said, that's not a movie that's Buffy and it's not, it's not just a TV show. It's a lifestyle. <laughs> and so <laughs> I'll, I'll leave with that and uh, encourage, you know, any other questions that uh, people have, please send them my way. It'd be fun to engage with those. Cool. Well, thank you. Yeah. Why don't you spend a minute? I know you do some uh, really interesting projects um, and, and sort of you have a kind of pretty strong social media presence. You want to say a bit about um, some of the stuff you're doing and how people can, can follow you and your work? Sure. I think probably the easiest way is just go to my website, which is katyvalentine.com. And from there, I have different things that I'm doing. Um, and that's K-A-T-Y. T-Y. Thank you. Yes, it's K-A-T-Y Valentine, just like the holiday, V-A-L-E-N-T-I-N-E.com. And from there, you can see different projects that I'm working on. Um, I have a recent CD that's out for those that are into like harp music. It's one <laughs> of the things I do. My scholarship, I have a book coming out pretty soon. I'll post that on the website. Um, some different articles. I work a lot with gender and identity in the ancient world and a little bit with pop culture too. Um, and from there you can find me on Facebook and all the other, you know, all the other stuff or, or you can ask Matthew and he can tell you as well. Great. And I'll, I'll include some links to that in the show notes. Um, and again, I'm Matthew. This is a, uh, the superhero ethics podcast. Um, you can find us, um, at superheroethics.com or by, um, searching for superhero ethics on iTunes. Um, you can also find us on Twitter or on Facebook, both just under that name, Superhero Ethics. Um, and please uh, engage with us. I know, um, as Katie said, we'd both love to hear other people's thoughts. Um, where do you guys see apocalypticism in, in some of these movies or TV show? Or what are some of the um, interesting, like either good or bad ways you see it playing out and the way choices characters make? Let us know. Post a comment on Facebook. Um, send us an email at superheroethics at, at gmail.com. Send us something on Twitter. Um, uh, I think for myself and for Katie and I know also for Paul, we do this because we love these conversations. We'd love to continue them. So Katie, thank you again for being a guest. This was a lot of fun. Thank you everyone for Thanks tuning so in. Thanks so much for having me. It's great. Well, I get you definitely get, get you back on again soon. Uh, take care everyone. Have a good day.